Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It's our quarterly return to roots with a close scrutiny of the current mindset, morale, and methods of the Department of Justice with three of the old hands and former insiders that know it best. The sharpest focus, at least from the outside, remains on the two indicted cases against Donald Trump. One faces numerous legal challenges, but has an experienced judge capable of moving it along while the other appears straightforward but is presided over by a less experienced judge seemingly ill-equipped for the task. Separate from the challenges of trying Trump is the complication of muzzling him. A number of courts, state and federal, seem flummoxed by Trump's so far incorrigible practice of going public with insults, provocations, and flat-out lies about judges, witnesses, prosecutors, law clerks, the deep state, and anyone he sees as complicit in the attacks against him. Though it sometimes may feel that way to us, it's not all Trump all the time at 950 Pennsylvania Avenue. Merrick Garland and company of late have been taking on a spike in hate crimes against Jews and Muslims, discriminatory redlining practices, and Wild West unlawfulness in cutting-edge high-tech industries. And of course, there's the perennial task of managing key relationships, in particular the FBI and the White House. To break down the department's performance as we approach the highest water days of the legal age of Trump, we are really fortunate, as always, to welcome three insiders with detailed long-term familiarity with Merrick Garland and the department. And they are Katie Benner. Katie covers the department for the New York Times, where she was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize in 2018. She previously worked at the Times San Francisco Bureau and as a reporter for Bloomberg and Fortune magazine. Thank you, as always, for joining these quarterly DOJ episodes. Katie Benner. Thanks for having me. Paul Fishman, a partner at Arnold & Porter, where he is the head of the firm's crisis management and strategic response team. He's done it all at DOJ, including serving as a very senior official at Maine Justice and as the U.S. Attorney for the District of New Jersey. Thanks, Paul, for joining. Always happy to be with you, Harry. And Amy Jeffress, a partner of Paul's at Arnold & Porter, where she serves as the co-chair of the White Collar Defense and Investigations Practice. She spent 13 years at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, where she was, among other positions, chief of the National Security Section, and also had extensive experience at Maine Justice, including as counselor to the Attorney General. Thanks for joining, Amy, and by the way, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Thanks. Great to be with all of you. So, quite a bit has happened in Ninth and Pennsylvania in the last three months. Much of it goes beyond Donald Trump, but let's start there. We're in the thick of litigation in Special Counsel Jack Smith's two federal cases, the one in D.C. before Judge Tanya Chutkin growing out of the events of January 6th, and the one in Southern Florida before Judge Aileen Cannon growing out of his purloining of classified documents after leaving the White House. Let's start with the Chutkin case, where jury selection procedures start in early February, so we are really chugging along. 
The department filed a response to Trump's motion to excise language from the indictment, which is sort of beside the point now. But they suggested that January 6th itself is going to be front and center. We don't really have insider knowledge, but just based on everyone's experience, do we have a a sense yet of how the department's going to try the January 6th case? Who are the major witnesses? What their theory will be? I think one of the interesting things about the substance of the filing is that the prosecution is in some ways previewing the fact that they're going to treat Trump much like they treated the other defendants who stormed the Capitol, even though he wasn't there that day. I mean, you kind of get a sense from that, from the charges themselves, which were very similar to the charges against many of the J6 defendants. But what's interesting, and you see from this filing, is they're previewing this idea that the riot was actually a tool of Donald Trump's in a long-running scheme to retain power, that it was just something that was a natural culmination in a series of acts that began after the election, that it wasn't a spontaneous riot, and that he did use this both to threaten the vice president, Mike Pence, and then also to intimidate other people who would try to keep him out of the White House and try to get him to step down. And by the way, the, the Trump folks have focused in response to that. Absolutely. On the idea that he didn't have any idea that they would be violent. And I think that kind of misses the point, right? Because of following on what Katie just said is that disrupting the vote, disrupting the electoral college acceptance by the House is was actually the point for him. And he wanted he wanted those people to go to the Capitol, whether he wanted them to go to the Capitol to to break windows and hurt policemen and do the incredibly horrible things that they did that day, he's going to say, didn't see it coming. That's a very interesting issue of proof, but it doesn't really matter for Jack Smith's theory. His theory is they were there to put pressure on officers of the United States government, senators and and members of the House, to get them to not do their jobs. And that, I think, is the is the primary point. Which is sort of how he skirts the issue of whether or not he should have charged Donald Trump with inciting a riot. It doesn't matter whether or not a riot happened, even just having people outside the building screaming, hang Mike Pence, or having people outside the building yelling and screaming was enough to try to pressure our lawmakers. You used, Katie, the term long running, and I think that is a good way to explain the indictment, which doesn't start with January 6th. It starts right after the election with the fake elector schemes, and he he goes through all the different states. So to your original question, Harry, there are going to be a lot of witnesses to events that took place well before January 6th with respect to the overall conspiracy to undermine the results of the election. So I think it's going to be much more than just January 6th. And let's bring it home. I mean, don't you think someone somewhere has written some draft of an opening statement as former AUSAs? Are we going to see pictures of the melee during opening statement or, you know, just stick to Trump's chagrin and frustration at losing? It seems to me he envisioned something like this, and this happened to our country, ladies and gentlemen. Do you think that's, you know as a matter of trial tactics, where we're headed? I would try to get it in for sure. I mean, look, if you if you look at the images, if you started with the images of members of the House of Representatives cowering under their desks, if you started with images, not so much of the guy with his feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk, but if you have images of the senators and representatives running down the hallway in fear for their lives, the effect 
was very nearly to stop the process entirely. I mean, it's a credit to the House and the Senate that they got back into their chambers, right? It's a credit that the actual, but pretty clear that Donald Trump would have been thrilled if they had continued running straight out of the building and gone home. AUSA Jeffress, you agree? Because you could imagine instead, starting with Cassidy Hutchinson, and she heard Mark Meadows say this, and as Paul adverted, I, I don't think you draw a relevancy ob- uh, objection given the indictment, but do, do you think that's what we're going to see? I don't, actually. I think it's a more complicated indictment than that. And so just looking at it, it's a 45-page indictment, and you don't get to January 6th until page 36. So there is a lot of information about what's going on in the states. And I think a lot of the testimony is going to have to present that. What was happening in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania? What were his teams doing there to try to come up with ways to overturn the election results? And so January 6th, what happened, that's the culmination of all of this. But to me, that is also maybe the culmination of the trial, I wouldn't necessarily start with that in my opening statement. I think he's got to lay out a whole path. And then by doing so, he also undermines Trump's defense that, well, I wasn't even there at the Capitol and I didn't know it was going to be violent. He he was involved in the entire scheme leading up to that day. All right. Bets are placed. We're beginning to be at a point where a theory of the case and an order of witnesses, I think, is being charted out, right? So two eminences from the department, I thought the contrasting views in particular are interesting. I don't want to back off my disagreement with Amy. I love to disagree with Amy. She's been a, a, very, a, very, a very good friend of mine for a really long time, and she's recruited me to, the, to our law firm. So I owe her enormously. But I, I wasn't just necessarily they open with that image as the first thing in the case. But I will take issue with Amy on one thing. They will draw a relevance objection on everything that they do in this case. That defense team is going to argue that everything should be kept out, that the jury should hear no evidence whatsoever, that everything is too prejudicial. But won't that be done at the motions for in limine stage, though? But you've tried cases with lawyers who, and ironically, you know what their, their strategy is to be as obstructive as their client is. Yeah, it's interesting. And part of that may be their own strategy, and part of that may be supplementing his direction. And that's a whole nother discussion, but that's right, because there are special considerations given what I think are reasonable predictions about how Trump's team will try it. All right. Quick question about Mark Meadows, who it looks like may have testified under a grant of immunity, but with no cooperation agreement. How significant is that development in and of itself? And do you see him playing an important role at trial? Well, he's indicted in Georgia, right? So I think it's really difficult, you know, and he has a very good lawyer. I think they have to be very careful about how to navigate this. And I I don't know anything. And yet they testified, right? He's got to cop at least to that, whatever he said that I I agree. I was stunned. And they and he does have the best lawyers out there. Who represents him? George Terwilliger. Not just Terwilliger, but his right. He's got a Scalia, the writings. And he has John Moran and he has... George Terwilliger. Right, are the best written products. And also, Meadows wasn't the first person to testify under a grant of immunity. Cash Patel did as well in the documents case. The government got nothing out of that. And so Cash wasn't really used in that indictment. But here's my question. I, like, I, my familiarity with the law of immunity is not as recent as it once was. But if he testifies at the federal trial in March under a grant of immunity, 
isn't Fonnie Wills going to have a really hard time convicting him and showing that everything she's got, she obtained without regard to that grant of immunity? I mean, I mean, I, there's no question that she gathered a lot of evidence independently of that. But he's going to get one hell of a Castigar hearing in front of her if that's what happens. That's my best guess of his strategy in having done it, right? Right. That seems right to me. And, you know, that's look at the end of the day. That's how Oliver North got off right in the Iran-Contras because, because the witnesses at the criminal trial of Oliver North when he was immunized in front of the Iran-Contra committee couldn't say that they hadn't been influenced in some way by his testimony on national television. They had thought, seen it, they had read about it in the newspaper, and so ultimately the department lost his conviction. And so the question is, is that going to happen here if he testifies first for the feds in March? Let me just broach the legal question for everyone who's listening. It's if you testify under grant of immunity, your testimony is compelled. So the Fifth Amendment says it can't be used against you. And there's been very stringent ways of interpreting that. Whereas Paul says, Fonnie Willis could have big headaches trying to, sh- to show it. All right. Just a quick closeout here. It's set for March 4th. Do you think that's going to hold or pretty close? And what prospects are there for delay? The judge seems to be moving forward, taking steps to call the jury in advance of the trial date is one of those steps. So it seems like it will go to trial in the spring. And whether there might be a delay because of pretrial issues, it's possible, but it seems to be on track to me. I I thought one interesting development was the uh, appeal of the gag order, Harry. I think that's actually a very interesting issue. There's not a lot of cases like this one where you have a criminal defendant running for president. This is this is a first. And so applying that, yeah. the you know traditional case law in this context is just very difficult. And I think the argument in the Court of Appeals reflected that. But Judge Chuckin's order was really directed at you can't try to try your case in the media and you can't, even more importantly, you can't threaten and harass and intimidate witnesses and court personnel. And so we'll see what the DC Circuit does with that. But I thought that was very interesting litigation. He is the first president to be running for office and have a gag order, but he's also the first president, first former president, to have gotten indicted. But the truth is, the Department of Justice tries dozens of cases all the time involving people who are running for office. Bob Menendez is running for office, right? There are mayors and councilmen and governors who have not resigned and have run for office after they've gotten indicted. Usually they quit. So usually this isn't an issue, but it's not unique in that way. And his First Amendment argument really doesn't have any greater or lesser resonance for me because he's a candidate for the presidency as opposed to a different office. His First Amendment rights are not different in that regard, I think. Yes, his rights are not different. But what sets him apart from somebody like Bob Menendez for now is that he's also willing to say things that most candidates who are under indictment would never be willing to say. So it actually does make him very unique. And there's an argument that I think that the Justice Department has tried to make and that other officials have tried to make that this is not a political case, that this is just a righteous indictment on criminal activity. And there's a part of that that's true. But I think one of the reasons why a lot of Americans struggle with this case and do see it politically is because at the end of the day, what happens in these criminal cases, whether or not he was being unfairly prosecuted, or as he would say, persecuted, actually goes to the heart of part of his campaign. So there's a way in which this is just tied up with politics that it doesn't matter that the department wants to say this is simply a criminal prosecution. There's a reality, sort of a real politic level that is impossible to not see politically. And Trump is more than willing, more than other candidates so far, to draw that out, make it explicit, and weaponize it. And I think that that is why this gag order issue that Amy brought up is one of the more fascinating aspects of the case so far. Katie makes a very 
good point, as always. But also, what's also different is that the case itself is about politics. To be right, so Bob Menendez's case, or a case involving kickbacks, or bribes, or embezzlement, or the other kinds of crimes that public officials are usually accused of when they're indicted. They bear some relation often, and and they must, to the way they conducted their office, but not about the political process in that way. And that also does make this a little different. But if you narrow the gag order a little bit to say he can't talk trash about witnesses and about the prosecutors and about the judge, that is a little narrower. And I think that's ultimately where the court's going to end up. That's my sense as well. They'll be more targeted. I think the important practical issue as far as delay goes is whether they'll announce it and apply it or whether they'll announce it and remand it, giving Trump another round, at least of a quick appeal. So just on this filing that came out where I think it's Molly Gaston, the prosecutor who's working for Jack Smith, sort of lays out this this argument, you know, The reason why they even got to do this is because Donald Trump, his lawyer said, we don't want any information about the January 6th attack at trial. I mean, that's, I'm oversimplifying it, but they said, you know, we would like to suppress some of this information. And the department used this as an opportunity to lay out a really strong argument against Trump. I mean, they had valid reason to. They said, in fact, we do need to mention January 6th and the attack because it's essential to our case. But they did go further. They used this filing to say a lot more than they had to. And that said to me that prosecutors, having learned from the Mueller investigation and from Donald Trump's own behavior, that he is going to try to take advantage of how silent the department normally is, that while Jack Smith is not going to be holding press conferences about what the department thinks or feels in the way that Ken started, he's going to take every opportunity to make a strong case against Donald Trump in speaking documents at every turn. And that that is not the worst strategy to combat this imbalance of power between the Justice Department and a defendant that typically exists. And again, a typical defendant doesn't go out and attack the Justice Department in the way that Trump does. So this hasn't been as big an issue, but now it's a really big issue. And I think that Smith's team is trying to go at this creatively within the letter of their own policies and within the letter of the law. It's a great point, Katie, and it's a classic sort of prosecutor move. You speak through your filings before the court, and they are doing that very effectively. And I think even more, my sense is this has been sanctioned at the highest levels of the department. We saw this in like the Mar-a-Lago search warrant. We can take the opportunity when given to lay some stuff out for the American people and try to, you know, counteract the torrent of what's often actually just false information. The photos in that search warrant. But they could, and they were like, if Trump's going to say there was nothing there, why don't we just put in photographs of what was there, which was really powerful. Right. But it's, I keep harping on the Menendez thing, but he is my home state senator. But they did the same thing in that indictment. They have pictures of the gold bars, right? And the cash in the jacket. What's interesting about this and sort of ironic in some sense is that defendants complain all the time, justifiably in some circumstances and not justifiably in others, that the reason they hate speaking indictments is that the department lays out traditionally in, in an indictment, speaking indictment is one where it just doesn't say you committed fraud on such and such a day, full stop, right? It, it lays out the entire way in which the defendant allegedly did that. And the, and, and the reason the government does that is it's one chance at the beginning to lay the stuff out for the public so the public knows what the case is about. But defendants and their lawyers have decried that practice for decades and decades and decades. And it hasn't been going on for 100 years. It's been going on probably for 30 or 40 really robustly. 
and then prosecutors do it for that reason, and defendants hate it because it puts all this information in the public domain way before the trial. Here, you sort of have the opposite issue, right, which is that Trump is talking all the time, and now Smith is looking for a way to sort of even the score in that sense in the public record. Really good point. All right, so let's go south down to Mar-a-Lago. So Cannon, she's been, you know, tough on the government and gentle on Trump. We can speculate why, but my question's just this, a sort of legal strategy tactics. Given current trends, is there any opening or do you see one on the horizon for the department to seek recusal from the 11th Circuit? Are they stuck with her for the uh, duration, do you think? I expect so. I haven't seen her do anything that I would think would warrant recusal. It is somewhat ironic that the delay is happening in that case and not in the D.C. case, because I was talking earlier about how I think the indictment in D.C. is fairly complicated. This indictment in Florida is not at all complicated. It is quite straightforward, and it delivers the goods, as you were saying, in terms of the photographs of the classified information, obviously where it shouldn't be, and recordings of discussions of classified information. It's a quite strong case and a simple one. And so I find it odd. And there is classified information and there's litigation that has to take place about how that's used in court, but it's not especially complicated. And so it is ironic that that case may be delayed and the DC case is the one who's that's poised to go forward. I agree with Amy. I think, so first of all, you know, the old expression, if you shoot the king, you got to kill the king. If you take a shot at recusing a judge and you take it up to the court of appeals and you lose, it's a very, very, very dicey proposition. I did it once in the seven and a half years I was U.S. attorney, and that's something you think very long and hard about. Especially if you're DOJ, right? Well, especially in a case like this, right? And typically there are two things about this. One is the court of appeals is more likely to do it if they see their own orders being ignored. So if, for example, they send the gag order back to Judge Shutkin and she issues the same order again without regard to what the Court of Appeals said, that would annoy them. But here, where they're largely discretionary calls that judges make all the time, the Court of Appeals is going to be less interested in doing that. The second thing, and I don't really know the answer to this, is to seek the recusal of a judge in circumstances like this in front of the Court of Appeals, you need approval from the Solicitor General's office, I think, to take that position on appeal. And I'm not sure what that dynamic would be in the context of a Justice Department that's being run by an attorney general who is clearly keeping his distance from this. And even though the special counsel regs require you to run the ordinary traps in the department to get immunity or to get somebody's tax returns or to get whatever approvals you might need for a RICO or something like that, I'm not sure how that would work in this case. My view is you know, that part of this is she may have whatever biases she's had. She also hasn't been a district court judge very long. Some people have spectacular instincts and some people don't. And I think that some of this is she just may not be that good a judge. This to me is the biggest contrast with Chutkin. Chutkin knows how to run a court and move a case along. And I don't think she does. And it, it leads to a kind of brittleness and even peak to the DOJ, which is always the easiest target in this. Let me ask one more nuts and boltsy question that really interests me. Are Nalta and De Oliveira likely to plead here? It's a tough call for them because it's their employment versus their liberty. What do you mean? Well, if they get convicted, they could go to jail. And so I'm sure that they're thinking about pleading, but they also, I think they both still work for Trump, don't they? I, I think they do. 
Well, I think now certainly he wants to be there in the long run, I think. Yep. Unlike the three people who pled guilty in the Georgia case, all three of them are lawyers. I mean, there were some others, but like when you look at Ken Chesborough and Jenna Ellis and Sidney Powell, like they were facing basically the end of their careers as lawyers if they lost. I mean, they still could be facing the end of their careers as lawyers, but they were facing consequences that Walt Nauta is not going to be facing if he doesn't plead and he doesn't give evidence to the prosecution. He is a co-conspirator here, but of course, Cannon could go pretty light on him, I guess. I think that's right. If they have no criminal records, I don't know that they do. And and it's a relatively minor offense from this sort of aiding and abetting that they behaved in. I, I think that they might just risk it in order to continue to stay loyal to Trump and to work for him. They may not be facing much, if any, jail time in any event, even if they are convicted. So, And there there might be some sympathy for them in a jury trial, given the positions they were put in. So I think it's a very tough decision. I'm not sure they do plead guilty. Right. And the argument to the jury is going to be, uh, we didn't know what we were moving. He was the president of the United States. If he told us it was okay, we assumed it was okay. They're going to have some version of that. And then if they get convicted, they're going to say the, to Judge Cannon, look, he's Donald Trump. He's an incredible bully. What were we supposed to do? I'm not sure that that's going to carry the day, but it might in front of her. And now a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, I'm Lauren Johnson, director of the ACLU's Abortion Criminal Defense Initiative. Let's be clear. Those who want to end access to abortion care did not stop at the reversal of Roe v.ersus Wade. Prosecutors and politicians across the country are now threatening criminal penalties against providers, helpers, and in some instances, those who access abortion care. The attack on reproductive freedom continues, and we will not stop fighting back. In addition to the work the ACLU is doing to stop laws that ban abortion, we're working alongside other reproductive legal rights organizations in the Abortion Defense Network to provide critical legal defense support. The ACLU's Abortion Criminal Defense Initiative is mobilizing a network of skilled criminal defense attorneys to defend people facing criminal investigations or prosecutions for providing, supporting, or obtaining abortion care. Those facing prosecution related to abortion care deserve a zealous defense. They will not stand alone. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we stir up a discussion around cocktails. Make your own or buy them ready to drink. There's no question that mixing a delicious cocktail is truly an art form. Precise measurements and proportions, creative substitutions, the presentation itself, and even the speed of delivery are all factors that earn great mixologists the reputations they deserve. But for people who may not stock things like triple sec and bitters, a ready-to-drink cocktail that's pre-measured and mixed just might be worth pulling off the shelf. Ready-to-drink cocktails don't necessarily give you the satisfaction of creating a drink from scratch but they do offer up undeniable convenience, removing the complexity of recipes, the burden of acquiring ingredients, and the time it takes to measure, pour, mix, crush, stir, and of course, repeat. Plus, you still have the ability to customize your drink, adding a splash of this or that, here or there, to your liking. So, whether you're into customization or convenience, 
ready-to-drink cocktails give you a little bit of both. Now, who says you can't have your cocktail and drink it too? So what's better, customization or convenience? Probably depends on the situation. It can be fun crafting your own cocktail. But when time is short, ready-to-drink cocktail sure does hit the spot. Either way, you can grab all the ingredients you need for a great craft cocktail or get your ready-to-go favorite at Total Wine & More. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. I wanted to return and from the vantage point of the DOJ to this weird, I think you've already identified it as a singular problem in history of Trump, a criminal defendant, not only a former president, but a guy whose legal strategy is to scream with a megaphone what depraved, complete corrupt everybody in the system is, including family members and the like. Obviously, you know, for judges, this is a really tricky problem. They really don't want to be the person who puts him in jail, but their their tools are limited. And at one point, I think he can force them to say, next time, Mr. Trump, and then what are they going to do? I wanted to ask about how that's playing from the department standpoint. How do you think Jack Smith and team are thinking about this whole gag order constellation of problems? Well, if you look at what happened in New York, and of course that was not the department's case, but the the judge there was so upset because Trump went after his courtroom clerk, and that really is unacceptable, and it puts a person who is you know not a public figure in a position of you know potential danger. And I think if if Trump tried to do that in federal court, you know, go after the judge's law clerks or court personnel, those judges would have the same reaction, and the department would take steps to protect those individuals. I think that's a red line that he shouldn't cross again, and he was lucky to. Get away with what he did in New York. Do they see it as like, look, anybody else, you know, does that, they should go in, same as Donald Trump, or do they see it as an as a nightmare that would totally complicate the case, having him actually have a gag order that he violates? I guess the question is, it's in terms of sanctions, right? Is that the least restrictive sanction that the judge could impose or the, or that the prosecutors could ask for, right? If you're talking about like how do you, how do you deal with this? And the answer is you take away his phone. He could live at Mar-a-Lago with no internet access. If I were the judge, I wouldn't put him in. The security concerns are too high. The, the risk is enormous. And I, this is, by the way, true. I think in the end, a judge is going to have to think about this in terms of sentencing, right? But for the moment, it's just in, in terms of sanctions. The image of Donald Trump being told, you can't live at Mar-a-Lago. You can't mingle with crowds of people, which, you, which is exactly what would happen. And you effectively select the conditions of incarceration that are necessary to maintain order in your court, which does not mean he has to be in a cell. It does mean he's got to be in a place where he can't communicate with anybody but his lawyers and his immediate family and a member of the clergy, maybe. It doesn't have to be that he's incarcerated. And so that's how you could figure out some combination of conditions that wouldn't let him tweet or wouldn't let him make public statements. I'm not saying that that's the right answer. I'm just saying the jail is probably not the right answer here. The judge in New York started with fines and relatively small ones in the overall context. And I think that that's where I would go if that were, if he started violating, you start with fines and then you say, this happens again, we're going to have to consider higher, you know, greater sanctions. But if he wants it to, and it strikes me, maybe he does, he can drive it to that point. And then what, I think, Paul, your analysis is spot on for judges. I'm just wondering, where is Jack Smith and the department? 
if he continues to do this, and they're the ones whose trial and the integrity is threatened, is it the least bad option to put him in? How are they thinking about it as prosecutors? I wonder if you have any thoughts. You're talking about the integrity of the trial, which I think is an important concern here. But I was really talking about the physical risk to individuals and especially non-public figures, right? The integrity of the trial is a slightly different issue because there's this issue of to what extent is he really threatening witnesses? And and one of the examples from the Court of Appeals argument the other day was him saying things about Bill Barr. Is Bill Barr's testimony going to change because of what Donald Trump is saying about him? Probably not. So is that really a threat to the integrity of the trial? And I think a lot of the witnesses in these cases are, you know, quite solid and are not going to be intimidated by anything that is tweeted about them. And so the integrity of the trial to me is it's still important, but it would take a lot more to threaten that than it does, uh, in my view, to threaten these, you know, court employees and other people who really should not be put in harm's way because of this. I think that what Amy's saying about the credibility of the trial is probably the key to how the Justice Department is thinking about this, because it's not just the credibility of the trial, it's the credibility of the verdict, too. If the credibility of the trial is undermined, the credibility of the verdict will be undermined, and then that is really not what you want as a prosecutor. I guess, like, reputationally, that Jack Smith and Merrick Garland would think about this differently, too. You know, Jack Smith, his reputation is he goes in and he wants to win. And if he feels like he has more than 50% chance of winning, he's going to take the case to trial, put it before a jury and see what happens. Reputationally, Merrick Garland, when he became attorney general and his in his first year, especially in office as the AG, he was thinking a lot about that credibility issue around the Justice Department. Our courts and our DOJ don't really have a lot of meaning if the public does not believe in them. The Justice Department can do everything right. A judge can do everything right. But if a huge swath of the population has been convinced, for example, by Donald Trump that there's these people are criminals and liars, those things are less meaningful in some ways and really undermines democracy. And so is it worth it to stand on a principle and find Donald Trump and eventually put him in jail before his trial even begins if that is going to, in the mind of the public, increase the likelihood that they think that this is a purely political prosecution designed to keep Donald Trump out of office, and that whatever conviction or, you know, whether or not a conviction happens, no matter what a jury decides, that there's no credibility there. And I think that somebody like Merrick Garland would be weighing those things and saying, is, is that worth it? And I think that that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world to be weighing in this moment, because this is such a sensitive issue. It's not just the safety of people, whether or not they could be persuaded, whether or not somebody's going to threaten Bill Barr or go to his home. It is, at the end of the day, the preponderance of all the activities that happened before a jury comes back and says whether or not they think Donald Trump committed a crime. Is that going to undermine what the American people think of that verdict, especially when it's this politically sensitive? And I think that is a reasonable lens. And I like, again, reputationally, that's a lens that Merrick Garland would be willing to think about and consider it sort of, and he was a judge. Reputationally, that's just not the way Jack Smith thinks about it. I think that may be right. But I also, I, I think that maybe giving Jack sort of one step less something, I'm not sure what the word is, than he deserves under these circumstances. I think prosecutors, good prosecutors, responsible prosecutors, prosecutors who have been in the supervisory hierarchy do think about that. His role at The Hague was to think about the credibility of international prosecutions at the highest level of the world court, right, at the International Criminal Court. And so I think that he probably – he doesn't come to this without that idea 
and because of his role in both the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn and in the public integrity section. I think he's had those conversations with people because, Katie, even if it doesn't happen in this context, I know Amy's had these conversations. I know Harry has, too, is when you're bringing the case at the end of the day, is it a case that you should make a federal case out of? Always. What, is, it, is it strong enough? What if we don't win? Should we bring it at all? People make those calls. And if the dialogue is sufficiently robust in the U.S. Attorney's Office or in the building in, at 950 Pennsylvania Avenue, people learn that. Some people are better at picking it up than others, but I think he's he'd been exposed to it enough. The one wrinkle I think gets thrown into this is that it's not typically the case in most political corruption cases, at least that people associated with the trial are actually in danger. And since we've already seen, we already know that what Trump says and the way he says it and the, and the forum in which he says it can actually precipitate action by people who think that they're doing something that's righteous in some way, even though they're completely misguided and maybe crazy. In this context, when people, yeah, Bill Barr's not going to change his testimony, but when you said something about throwing exits, is, is it possible that somebody could attack Bill Barr? Or Tanya Chotkin. Right, right, exactly. I, I mean, I think that those people, I assume, have increased security and they will continue to have that. I wonder about people like Cassie Hutchinson. What's that story for those people and how are they living their lives as people know that they have basically left Team Trump and they may give testimony if I'm a prosecutor, if I'm thinking about what the obligations are of the Department of Justice to make sure that my witnesses stay safe, that has to be crossing his mind under these circumstances. I think it's probably paramount in a lot of judges' minds now that, you know, something like this really could happen. It's a problem for the system, even if they're thinking about it just in terms of an individual case. Paul, I take your point that I, and I think there are discussions that Smith and, in fact, Lisa Monaco or Garland participate in. But I do want to say that, I, Katie, I think you put it really beautifully, that, that ultimate lookout that the best prosecutors are doing for how, if there is a conviction, it will settle in the American mind and in history. So it's not like we've solved the problem, but, but I think it, that really expresses the mindset that is specific to, to DOJ. All right. Let's spend a few minutes, as I always try to do anyway these days, talking about something other than Donald Trump. So Merrick Garland's been quite concerned and sounded the alarm about hate crimes against Jews and Muslims spiking in the country as a result of the war in Gaza. I don't know if you've seen stats, but tripling worse. How should the DOJ be responding? And is, you know, is there more that needs to be done here? What would you be thinking of in their shoes? They are responding, Harry, and they're bringing cases. They've brought several already, and I think they've been acting very promptly. You know, there was a Cornell student arrested. There was another announcement just recently of another hate crime prosecution. I think that's how Merrick Garland would prefer to be known as, you know, leading a department that is doing what's necessary in these difficult times and bringing cases like that. I would also say the recent multi-billion dollar settlement with Binance. It's a huge crypto enforcement settlement, and, and then obviously the prosecution of Sam Bankman-Fried is another, you know, they- Would you put Google antitrust in with that too? Google antitrust, obviously very different, but yes, they, they have talked 
for two years now about wanting to reinvigorate antitrust enforcement, and here they are, you know, taking steps to do that. So, I, and these are the things that I think they wanted to be known for. I don't think they wanted to be known for, you know, these Trump prosecutions and the January 6th cases, but I mean, the January 6th cases are getting a lot of resources and they're very important and it's good that they're doing that, but that's not the affirmative agenda that you go to DOJ to fulfill. So some of these other things I think are, are probably much more what they had hoped to be spending their time on. And Katie, do you see these as coincidental cases or is there like an initiative afoot? Amy's comments were so interesting and two, two things came to mind. One, Certainly the department, one of the first things Lisa Monaco talked about was wanting to reinvigorate white-collar crime investigations, and that's what Binance, and that's what Sam Bankman-Fried would fall under. Yes, the technology is new. Yes, cryptocurrency is relatively new of the last decade, but the crimes that they're accused of are very old-fashioned crimes, right? Moving money to where it shouldn't be, hiding money, stealing money, letting other people use the banking system for illicit gain. I mean, that's that's been with us long before crypto. And so that is certainly something that uh, Lisa and Monica had talked about wanting to reinvigorate. And I certainly think that's something they wanted to be known for. It's interesting too, you know, what when you were talking about the hate crimes initiative, which Garland had said was going to be something that he cared very much about. I think one of his very first speeches as attorney general, he tied domestic terrorism to things like disenfranchising people from the vote, hate crimes based on race, ethnicity, religion, etc. So I think that was always something that's been with us. I don't want to forget, too, that because of what's been happening in Gaza, it's not just a matter of hate crimes happening and increasing in the U.S. When Ray testified a couple weeks ago... Director of the FBI. FBI Director Chris Ray. He's, I couldn't believe this was overlooked because it was such a searing moment, but he said that since the attack in Israel and then the war on Gaza... The likelihood of a terrorist attack, even in the United States, has increased. And so this is now on the FBI's to-do list. I mean, obviously, the FBI and the National Security Division, Amy knows this better than anyone right now here with us today, is always something that's top of mind for the United States. But Ray was saying, this is really top of mind right now, that he'd gotten, what was it? I don't remember. It was like over a 1,000 or some huge number, number of tips. They're looking at Hamas. They're trying to keep money from flowing into the group. There have been now calls for lots of terrorist activity, including on U.S. soil. So now we have to worry about the possibility of terrorist attack here in the United States. So I think that there's just a lot that came out of that testimony. But that, in terms of, I think for the department, it's like a multi-front issue. It's what's going on with hate crimes here at home because of the rhetoric, because of the actions, because of the war. And also, what do we now have to think about proactively, preventatively? Because Hamas showed itself to be extremely strong and powerful in a way that was surprising, and that's very inspirational. And I think that that's something the department's going to take seriously, and should we should be paying more attention to that. You mean inspirational even to, non to, to just prospective terrorists in the United States, you're saying? Yes. It's like, who would have ever thought Hamas would be able to break through the fence, go into Israel and kill that many people. Katie and Amy both made excellent points, right? But there are through threads here. First, look what we're talking about, right? Somebody who speaks or does something and inspires people who are otherwise unconnected with that particular event to engage in violence. That's the part of the piece we were talking about with the gag order and Trump's January 6th behavior. But the lone wolf terrorist inspired by somebody who does something like what Hamas does is always a threat and greater, says Ray. Remember where, where Merrick comes from, right? Merrick, the two things that made the most impression on him in his time serving in the deputy attorney general's office, the thing on which he spent more time than anything else, were 
the Oklahoma City bombing and the Unabomber, right? And so he knows that world. He studied that mindset, and it scares him. It really scares him. He has been somebody who, more than any of the other judges, was always paying attention to the Waco anniversary and what it would mean in his courthouse, because that was the day that McVeigh blew the building up in Oklahoma City, right? He understands where that comes from, and so that's important. The other piece that we're talking about, white-collar crime, he was a white-collar criminal defense lawyer. He was a federal prosecutor, right? He he knows, Katie's right, lying, cheating, stealing. That's what white-collar crime is about, and he was an antitrust What, what firm was he at? He, he was some firm called Arnold and Porter, that, right? <laughs> um, neither Amy nor I were there. Then we were much younger. But yeah, he was at our law firm and was, uh, you know, made partner at like the age of 14. I mean, he was, you know, he was a wunderkind even then. But there's one other piece of this that I think that's worth talking about. And one thing that he's paying attention to in a way that I'm really thrilled to see, he invited a group of faith leaders into the Department of Justice last week to talk to them about hate. And one thing that I think people forget is that all across the country, there are, and you know this, Harry, there are 93 U.S. attorneys who interact with the community on a very powerful level on a daily basis, differently than in the Southern District of New York, than on the Native American reservations in South Dakota. But U.S. attorneys are out all the time talking about the priorities of the department. I would not be surprised to see what we saw at the beginning of the Obama administration when, when President Obama and the Attorney General Eric Holder were trying to I- increase and improve the relationship between the Department of Justice and, in particular, the Arab and Muslim community back then. It was still only eight years after 9-11, and they were embarked on that process. And I would not be surprised to see the Attorney General give direction to people in the field to really work on those relationships to themselves, be giving speeches of the kind he's going to give about hate and discrimination and terrorism and what the role of the Department of Justice is in building those bridges as well as enforcing the law. This is why I love these discussions and why I think it's super valuable to have people who really see the mindset of uh, the department leadership. Let's just close two and a half years or so in. Garland has been famously arm's length toward the White House. Any sense of how you would assess the current level of sort of warm and fuzzy or affection, confidence in the DOJ from the White House. What's the state of that relationship to the extent you guys have insight? Harry, you and Paul and I met working for Janet Reno's Justice Department, and we all remember how much the White House did not like her appointment (laughs) of the special counsel for the Whitewater, or I guess it was independent counsel at that point, for Whitewater. And I can't imagine that this White House was very happy with the special counsel appointment of Robert Herr for the classified information investigation or the elevation or designation of David Weiss to be special counsel. I doubt that they're thrilled with these developments, but I would say that both sides are probably aligned in this respect, which is that they are both trying to be very careful to keep those separations. And so even if these developments are not welcome, they are probably welcome to the extent that the White House thinks it's very important that Merrick Garland remain independent and demonstrate that he is so. And Merrick Garland probably welcomes the fact that, you know, the Biden White House is not going to be reaching out about any of these matters. They want to make sure that they keep very, very clean on these matters. And I think they both are. And I, I'm not sure that they're going to get credit for that. I think the world doesn't necessarily believe that the department is independent, but I think they are, uh, probably to a fault. That's the way I see it. Look, I don't know anything really firsthand about it, obviously. But I agree with Amy, it's a little tricky. Keep in mind that when 
Merrick Garland started working in Maine Justice in the spring of 1993. He was the number two in command of the criminal division. Every recommendation for an independent counsel that came out of the public integrity section of the department, as it did in those days, crossed his desk. He was in every meeting with the attorney general and the deputy attorney general when that decision was made. He knows the kinds of considerations that go into that. I know because I saw the notes, Janet Reno, when she was in the meeting to decide whether to appoint Bob Fisk as the independent counsel, a recommendation that was later rejected by the special court, she literally wrote on the bottom of her page, damned if I do, damned if I don't, bottom line, just do the right thing. I'm not kidding. It's, she wrote that down. And Merrick was in the room, I'm sure, when she said it, right? So he knows that decision making. The thing that I think is really tricky in Washington is he is a member of the president's cabinet. They picked him, obviously, because he was known for his integrity. They picked him, obviously, because he was known to be fair and incredibly smart and a deep thinker and knew the issues of the Department of Justice. But they also picked him because there was this massive reaction against the intrusiveness of, Do of Donald Trump in the Justice Department, telling Jeff Sessions and Bill Barr what to do. And as it turned out in the end, everybody else at the end, Rod Rosenstein got importuned, Jim Comey, Jeff Clark. I mean, it was really got, it became incredibly awful. And, and everybody wanted that barrier. What I worry about is not so much the criminal prosecutions, because the criminal prosecution should always be independent of the White House. What I wonder about and worry about are whether there are other policy issues and other things. And I don't know this to be true, but I worry that they may be a little reluctant, and he may be a little reluctant, to have the honest dialogue with the President of the United States or with, about things that really matter to the Department of Justice that have policy implications, but are perceived to be litigation matters in which the White House might have a view. And, and maybe he should know what that view is, and maybe he should express it to them. I remember when the question was whether the department in the Supreme Court was going to defend the Defense of Marriage Act and how what the department stand was going to be on, a, on what is ordinarily a general presumption that the department defends an act of Congress in front of the Supreme Court. And when Eric Holder announced the decision that the department was not going to defend the statute, he very pointedly said, I didn't really talk to the president of the United States about that. And I thought that was kind of weird. And, you know, he's my friend, but I thought it was weird because the president of the United States was a constitutional law scholar before he became the president of the United States. And so the idea that he wouldn't have a view on what was a legal and policy matter that involved civil litigation in the Supreme Court of the United States struck me as unusual and maybe not the right course. But they both wanted to make sure that people didn't think they were talking about things that they shouldn't be talking about. So there is risk either way. I think people don't realize during the time when we met, there were regular channels of communication where people would go over. I participated to the White House on things that were litigation driven, but had real policy implications. One that I remember a lot is how to go about freedom of religion, where, you know, there were pretty strong cross currents. And on policy issues, it's not inappropriate. Nevertheless, I was going to say once burned, twice shy, but I mean, burned, it, it's is an understatement for what happened during the Trump years. And I think both of you guys are in a very nuanced and sophisticated way suggesting the imperative of reacting to that maybe inevitably has at least changed things. And one could argue in some ways not to the optimal. I think inside the department, there's a sense that to what Amy and Paul have surmised, that there's a sense that people would agree that Garland has perhaps made the wall between himself and the White House too high, that he was doing it out of an abundance of caution, uh, that he understands that his legacy is going to be in part 
depoliticizing the Justice Department to some extent and that he needed to be the example for that. How history will judge that ultimately, I think, is still up for grabs. But certainly inside the building, they see that that was his intent and that it has created some issues with the White House, some that are wrapped up in the prosecution of the president's son that could not be avoided. And so, you know, they accept that there is a somewhat strained relationship at times that is almost a necessity at this point. And there's an end. As you hear this, you're everyone's back to work, but as we tape it, it's the Friday after Thanksgiving and we're all a little bleary-eyed, so cut us some slack. Thank you so much to Amy, Katie, and Paul, and we'll look forward to getting the band back together in three months to talk more about the Department of Justice. And we are out of time. Thank you so much to Katie, Amy, and Paul. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes talking books, and bonus video content, as well as daily explanations by me of important developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether they're for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McCardle, Our research producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. And production assistants by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbailu, and Emma Maynard. Our endless gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.